Hello and welcome to another episode of the Engineers Collective, brought to you from the safety of lockdown here in the UK. As the country begins to get back to work over the next few weeks and months, we continue to send the entire civil engineering sector our best wishes in these strange and unprecedented times. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. To find out more about Bentley's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, go to bentley.com. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer. I'm joined today by news editor Rob Horgan. Hi Claire. And our features editor Nadine Badu. Hi there. Hello. And later on we're going to be joined by National Grid's project director for phase two of the London Power Tunnels project, Gareth Burden, to talk to us about the challenges of getting projects underway during the COVID-19 lockdown. So we've been talking about coronavirus in every episode of the last few months, but it's still an ongoing challenge for the construction sector. What new issues and developments have emerged in the last month? So the biggest development in the last month or so would be the publication of a 37 billion infrastructure procurement list by the IPA, uh, which sets out 340 contracts um, over 260 projects, which are to be procured over the next year, uh, which should hopefully have some, uh, which should help to reassure the, the industry that there is work out there and work still to come. So obviously providing that longer term visibility for the industry is really crucial and it's a topic that's raised in a feature in our July issue that looks at the future of the rail industry and some of the challenges facing projects. And one of the things that was raised, which isn't just relevant for rail projects, but the construction industry as a whole, is the kind of importance of having that clear pipeline of projects and work coming online at a really steady rate so that we don't have that continuous boom and bust cycle because obviously that's such a major impact on all resources, including skills. So obviously, despite the IPA announcement, there are clearly some immediate pressures on firms across the industry as they kind of deal with that impact of COVID-19. And we're seeing job cuts at various companies, including Kelpray, which have announced 300 workers will be made redundant. And the Carrier Group also announcing plans to restructure the business in a bid to cut costs and staff numbers. And unfortunately, I'm sure there'll be more to come. Yes, that's the problem. The Infrastructure Projects Authority announcement is great, but the problem is it's about procurement and there's still quite a bit of time before we'll see those projects on the ground, which is probably why we're seeing so many job losses, despite the news about the pipeline. So unfortunately, I think we probably will see more job losses in the next few months. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting though, to see how kind of changes in the government's lockdown rules will start to impact businesses as they look to kind of that kind of post-COVID recovery. And obviously there there are more people travelling to work and leisure at the moment. So as those lockdown measures are eased, but the government is still kind of discouraging people from using public transport unless it's absolutely necessary. I was speaking to Network Rail CEO Andrew Haynes um, in June and he said he can't see people returning to normal commuting patterns. And he said that creates a number of issues around timetabling and funding. Andrew was saying that currently Liverpool Street Station is one of the busiest in the UK, but the peak of travel is over by about 10 past seven in the morning. I mean, in normal terms, that'd be unheard of. But what do you think the implications of that are? Well, we've already seen the impact that, that that's had on Transport for London with lower passenger numbers decimating its fares revenue and the government's emergency powers effectively ending franchising of the, of the train operating companies. But what does that mean for kind of future projects? It's hard to say because it's really hard to know what the travel plans are going to be. But Andrew Haynes was saying that they are looking forward, looking to bring investment forward to boost COVID recovery. But I guess the terms of how projects are assessed needs to be reconsidered in the future. 
I mean, when you look at business cases, say for the bank station capacity upgrade, that was all based on passenger numbers. So based on the post-COVID environment, if people aren't travelling in the same way and their lower pedestrian numbers forecast, would that kind of project still get the go-ahead? That's certainly a question for the for the long term, I'd say. In the short term, it looks like projects which were planned are still going ahead, despite TfL having to, to restructure its plans and and reassess where what money's going where it's still committing to to projects like the banks completing the bank station capacity upgrade uh the northern line extension uh, and other projects such as the silvertown and barking riverside project as well uh, and so in the short term there's no there's no sort of pause on on what their or change of thinking in terms of what projects are going to be funded and what about the broader industry? Uh, well, the ICE actually published a really interesting report um, alongside its uh, consultation on COVID-19 in which they questioned the appropriateness of certain invest- investments in a post-COVID-19 world. Um, it's quite a controversial statement, I thought, um, where they were questioning whether projects such as HS2, um, the £27 billion roads investment strategy, uh, and Heathrow expansion, whether they they would be uh, appropriate was the word they used in a in a post COVID nineteen world. I'm not quite sure what they mean by appropriate. Whether that's sort of an environmental thing, or whether they mean appropriate in terms of uh, necessity, in terms of demand. Um, so that's that was quite interesting. Um, the Office of Rail and Road has also uh, urged Highways England and the DFT to, to take another look at its road investment strategy um, once the dust has settled on, on the impact of, of COVID-19 and what that means for, for the future of travel. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I chaired an event for the High Speed Rail Group in June and the panellists there were saying that the need to move around the country faster and in a more green way will actually add weight to the need for HS2 rather than lessening it following the pandemic. And we also have to consider kind of what impact the pandemic will have on air transport. I mean, will it still be economically viable for airlines to operate short-haul flights across the UK? So that's another area where the High Speed Rail Group has been doing some research and they did that with Green Gauge 21. And they were saying that the collapse of the aviation industry creates a stronger business case for its proposed Scottish link for HS2. Um, The concept's quite interesting because it's been broken down into a number of smaller projects that could be delivered incrementally to gradually cut the journey times from London to Scotland. And they reckon it could actually be ready for when phase one of HS2 is completed too, to maximise the benefits. But we've also been looking at how the pandemic might influence the design of future projects as well. Um, I think, Rob, you've been looking at that as well. And you think HS2 actually considered the impact of a pandemic in 2017. What were the options they looked at? Yeah, so it was uh, HS2's independent design panel uh, in a in an update in January 2017. They, they urged HS2 to innovate to prevent germs from circulating. That's what they said. Um, and sort of recommendations, they were quite um, brief, to be fair, but they were... They were looking at upgrading air conditioning units on trains and in stations, similar to what you get on planes at the moment, and also investigating different types of surfaces um, that you have in trains and and at stations so that they're more hygienic, uh, easier to clean, um, that type of thing. So so this isn't a new thing. This is going back, you know, over three years now that people have been looking into it. Um, and more recently, uh, HS2's, 
Chief Executive Mark Thurston announced that uh, a, a dedicated team had been set up within HS2 to, to look at the impacts of COVID-19 and what that means for the designs, particularly at stations. Yeah, development of materials and surfaces that we touch on transport systems and in buildings to make themselves cleaning is quite an interesting area because that could really reduce the spread of disease. I think there's a group at the University of Birmingham that are looking at materials that can kill the virus easily using antimicrobial and I can't say this word, antimicrobial or coated surfaces, that would kill it within hours, you know, at the moment they can kill it within hours, but they're looking to bring that down to seconds, and they reckon that could actually be realistically possible by the end of the year too. So that could be, had real potential to change things with um, social distancing. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating how coronavirus is driving that adoption of new technology at a real fast rate. I mean, I'm working on a feature at the moment, which is looking at keep to m tags. So it's basically a wearable electronic tag that alerts staff when they're within two metres of another person also wearing the tag. Um, and also the, they can be reconfigured to change that distance. So obviously if uh, the social distancing measures are changed slightly to, say, one and a half metres, they can be reconfigured to alert at that distance as well. Um, and the tags also have QR codes, so you're able to identify identify users' locations at specific times. So that gives us a kind of really clear visibility of which staff have come into contact with each other. And that data could be, you know, really vital for projects, especially where we've seen sites that have had to close because one person begins showing signs of, of COVID-19. So it'd be really interesting to see how that new technology could really impact future projects. That's really interesting. But there are also environmental challenges that are facing future projects too. We've already seen that Heathrow's expansion plans have been affected. And there's obviously the new legal case that's using the same precedent for blocking Highways England's second road investment strategy. Do you think the start, it's just the start of things to come in that in that environment? Yeah, it would look likely. Um, the interesting thing with the, the RIS2 challenge is that it's the same legal team that successfully overturns the uh, Court of Appeal. Uh, sorry, it was the Sorry, I'll say that again. It's the same legal team that successfully overturned the uh, decision on the airport's uh, policy statement, um, which effectively blocked uh, Heathrow expansion. Um, so you wonder whether there's they're going to become sort of crusaders uh, looking to block infrastructure projects from an environmental standpoint. Um, they're definitely sort of springboarding off of that Heathrow decision and, and pretty much their entire argument against the 27 billion roads plan is is built on that Heathrow precedent uh, so you would you would you would think that that's going to uh, be replicated down the lines uh, if, if and where possible um, however you, you'd hope that clients are perhaps take take that on board when they're they're making their decisions um, the Department for Transport in particular so how soon do you think the RIS2 things will actually come to court and we'll actually know what the decision is on that? Well, uh, the official uh, complaint was lodged at the start of June. Uh, we're waiting to hear DFT's official response. Um, if it's anything like the Heathrow case, it could it could take up to a year to be heard in the High Court. And then there's obviously the whole appeals procedure which that goes on so some of these projects which are in the road investment strategy could well be underway by the time a decision is actually made on it that's pretty tricky for the people who are actually working on those projects so it's, it's pretty clear that there are plenty of challenges to deal with both in regards to coronavirus and the climate emergency 
as well as the day-to-day issues, but engineers love a challenge, don't they? The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Valued for their depth, breadth and scalability, Bentley Software Solutions can help you gain insight from the data you collect and coordinate, improve decisions and achieve better business outcomes. Your organisation may already be going digital, but if it's struggling to embrace change or realise the benefits of digital technologies, Bentley invites you to gauge your organisation's progress by taking one of our digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going digital. So there's been a lot of focus on the challenges of working through the coronavirus pandemic for projects already underway. But what about projects that were just about to get started as lockdown was put in place? Today, we're going to be talking to National Grid's project director for phase two of the London Power Tunnels project, Gareth Burden, whose team were faced with dealing with just that. Gareth is a chartered mechanical engineer with 12 years of experience on delivering major infrastructure projects for the National Grid, including phase one of the London Power Tunnels project, which he saw through through to commissioning in 2017. Before joining the project team for the second phase of the London Power Tunnels, Gareth worked as an advisor to National Grid's executive director, Nicola Shaw, helping to oversee a substantial change in the business. So welcome to the Engineers Collective, Gareth. Thanks. So before we get started to talk about the recent challenges your team have been dealing with, can you set the scene and explain what the overall London Power Tunnels project is and why it's needed? Uh, With pleasure, yeah. So effectively, we're replacing and reinforcing um, the transmission system in London. Um, That was built in the 50s and 60s using technology available at the time, um, which has since reached the end of its uh, usable life. So in a phased uh, in a, in a phase fashion, we're renewing the transmission circuits in London. So think of it, if if the analogy with National Grid and and the high, and Highways England is that we're the motorways, think of it as replacing the M25 in London um, for the transmission system, so that we all maintain the levels of service we've come to expect from a transmission system in the UK. So what was actually the scope of the overall project? How many kilometres of tunnel is the overall scheme? So the first phase, which completed in 2017, um, was to rewire North London effectively. Um, and the second phase that we're talking to you about today and, and, and are just underway with is, is predominantly South London. In fact, all based south of the river, um, spanning from Wimbledon in the west all the way out to um, Crayford um, via Bexley and um, New Cross in the, uh, in the southeast. So it's largely a split of 32 kilometres north and 32 and a half kilometres south of the river. And could you put that, the scale of that project in some kind of context for us as compared to other national grid infrastructure projects that have been delivered in sort of recent years? Um, so it's our biggest uh, capital investment in our, in our next price control, which starts um, in, in 2021. Um, it's the biggest investment the first scheme was the biggest single investment in the transmission system um, since the 60s um, and, um, and and is comparable to some of the interconnectors that, that our non-regulated business deliver between um, between the UK and and, um, and and some of the countries in Europe that we're connecting as part of um, National Grid Ventures um, works. But working in London must bring some u- unique challenges to the work compared to doing the interconnectors. Yeah, yeah. So they're vastly different. Yeah. So, so I think one of the biggest challenges of the first scheme was 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 having a common purpose and a common direction across thirteen sites in the whole across London. That's no mean feat. Um, likewise, we've got eight different sites south of the river now, and trying to have 
common messages and, and, common, um, and common deliverables and, and objectives across all the different interface and across and with all the interested stakeholders and parties is a, is a big challenge for us, yeah. Uh, likewise, trying to get the consents and permissions for those um, for the tunnels themselves and, and for the assets that we're looking to build above ground as well. So focusing on the, the second phase of the, of the project, can you talk us through what, what's planned and where it is at the moment? Yeah, so we awarded our, our, um, our tunnels contract to, uh, to Hockteef Murphy, to a joint venture of Hockteef and Murphy um, back in December. So we're very much in the year of mobilisation and design this year before um, three years of, of, of pretty intense tunnelling. So, so we've got 32 and a half kilometres of tunnel in South London. 80% of that is in the Thanet Sands or in the Chalk, so it's, it's challenging ground conditions. Um, we've got um, four. We're going to deploy four tunnel boring machines for that. One will be reconditioned, repurposed, um, open face open face machine for, for those who know the tunneling um, that, that's going through the clay in, in West London, in South West London, um, from um, a site in Brixton, um, Kings Avenue West to Wimbledon, and then the eighty percent of the uh, of the drive that's done in Thanet Sands and. Um, and chalk will be delivered by, um, or will be built using three new um, EPB earth pressure balance machine tunnel boring machines. So, other than the impact of the pandemic, and we'll come on to that in a moment, how does the delivery of the second phase compare with the first? Um, it's, it's quite similar. Um, we've got we've got um, very much the the initial driver for the for the first for the second phase is very much. Um, uh, what we refer to as non-load, so cable replacement, asset replacement, um, um, to anybody else. Um, we have been in conversations with the distribution network, UK Power Networks, to form a, a grid supply point. Um, so, so give them a connection for the distribution network at a, at a new site, which we're um, which we're in the development of at the moment. Um, but it very much non-load, so so it's looking to replace the existing cables, the two seven five cables, and uprate some of those two seven five cables that are in the road that were built in the fifties and sixties, and have since been built on top of and some made inaccessible, and and the idea of opening thirty two kilometres of red route in South London when South London depends so heavily on on its um, on its road infrastructure is uh, quite unpalatable to stakeholders. So we're going underground as, as as many people are um as we did in north london um with the full support of, of key stakeholders um you know the, the obvious benefits for us is that we've got an asset there that, that will a tunnel asset that will hopefully out, outlast the length of the of the cable assets that we put in it and any future maintenance or repairs can be done in situ and without disturbing any uh, anything above ground that's the plan so is it still the same diameter tunnels as you used on the first phase? So the first phase uh, had a four meter section because we were including some. We, we included a one three um, some um, additional circuits in there. So this this phase is just two tw- um, is two twin circuits. So six cables, um, six XLP cables around the tunnel doesn't require that extra diameter, that four meter diameter. So the, the thirty two and a half kilometer will be three meter internal diameter tunnels with um, adits, um, with some adits, temporary works at the start of the machine, uh, the start of the launch for the machines and potentially some adits for, for the grid supply point that I mentioned earlier um, that we're discussing with the uh, local distribution network. And what sort of depth underground will the tunnels in the second section go to? Um, at an average of 30 metres, but because of the ge- uh, geology um, 
going under Blackheath and the like, um, upward of 50 or 60 metres in depth uh, at times, um, which will be a challenge, uh, as, will, as will be the ground conditions in South London as well for us. Yeah, so looking at the two phases of the, the wider scheme, what, what did you learn from the first phase and how has that sort of changed your approach to the second phase? So I think there were lessons learned, and and there is, there's new technology available. If if I sort of answer the question in three phases, there's there's the digital side, then there's the techno technology sort of side, and then there's the commercial and, and contractual side. Um, I guess from a digital standpoint, there are there are there are vastly improved tools um, available to us for things like um, detailed design and making sure that the it, the first time we build something isn't it. it we're not doing things on site for the first time ever, and there are tools out there that can hopefully push us towards, you know, a more a more production approach to to say delivering some of the um, some of the civil um, structures that are required on the site, as opposed to um, arriving on site and it being the first time we build something. Um, so there's the digital side and the the sort of uh, common data environment we're trying to form and, and make sure we check clash detection and make sure that we're a bit more regimented in. Um, in our approach to, to managing our data and our information onto site. Um, so the first scheme taught us a lot as far as National Grid's um, uh, um, approach to risk. Um, we are quite risk averse. Um, the reliability that's required uh, from our system requires us to be. Um, we can't have one fault um, or, or one incident take out numerous circuits and cause a blackout. Um, that that wouldn't be as 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 um, behaving as a responsible transmission owner, um, so that's seen as in the past build perhaps perhaps over engineer some solutions say in the middle of in the middle of deep shafts and building dividing walls, so we've undertaken some innovation and some testing on our cables and our infrastructure, um, and looking at failure modes and seeing how far we can push that um, in order to 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 engineer out some of that some of those um, larger civil assets that perhaps. Um, aren't required so we're on with that at the moment we're very hopeful we can do something on, in that space and we then we force ventilate the tunnels um, and 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 that's another example of where we can learn lessons from the first scheme um, through through information and data feedback loops that mean that potentially we can reduce the requirement um, for, for forced air ventilation or um, such that we, we, we've got smaller units or such that we're doing things with natural ventilation and try, really trying to push the envelope there. We're not quite there yet, but we are confident that we can. there's some value engineering that we can do in that space, which is to the benefit of everybody because um, you know, we have to do the right thing for consumers because um, as we reduce our cap- capital spend, so, so reduces um, the, the impact on, uh, on customer bills going forward. So obviously one of the challenges you didn't have to deal with in the first phase was coronavirus. What stage was the workout when that when the lockdown happened in the UK? Um, so as I, as I mentioned earlier, this is the year of, uh, of, of mobilisation and design. So we were looking at um, our main works contractor, Hot Teeth Murphy, uh, um, for the tunnels. Uh, that, was a, that contract was awarded in December. Uh, we were looking at getting started and mobilised. Um, late March, early April. Um, so, so National Grid as a whole actually um, took a pause and, and sent out a, um, a, an instruction um, to all its contractors when the, um, when the social distancing guidance came out um, just to enable us to take stock of, of, of how 
um, we could take that guidance and how our contractors could take that guidance and, and apply it to, to safe working on construction sites. So there was a weak pause there. We hadn't mobilised before that. Um, uh, we've mobilised since. So we mobilised on our sites on the 14th of April on programme um, for the three drive sites. Um, and I've sat, I've actually stood in um, stood in one of our uh, one of our um, work briefings at, at her site, which is um, near, near the town of Bexley. Um, everybody social distance, two meters apart. It's a rather interesting uh, interesting way of doing things. And delighted the weather was good because it was held outside, and um, everyone did the we did the sort of put um, set to work brief of the morning and. Um, and yeah, people are taking sensible measures like that, and um, and a further investment in space and, and welfare um, to make sure that the, the the works can go on, the show can go on, basically. Other than sort of social distancing and and that sort of thing, what how else has the pandemic affected the work um, that you've been doing and the progress? Um. So, speak speaking to. Um, Santiago, the project director for Optif Murphy, I think it has had an impact on, um, on 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 the supply chain. It obviously has had an impact on the supply chain, and and particularly engaging um, people from departments that 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 found themselves uh, perhaps thin on the ground as a result of the virus. Um, I don't think anybody can put their hand on the heart and say they know exactly what the impact of this situation is at the moment. Uh, but when you look at you know what, what we plan to achieve and where we are at the moment. Um, it's 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 had an impact, but it's it, I think the the it's it's had an impact on the works on site. Um, but I think the the larger impact will be in 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 further down the line on on the on the procurement and the supply chain and getting the jobs going and really motoring and and getting momentum behind um, behind some of the contracts that have been recently been awarded. So can you give us some examples of some of the changes you've had to introduce on site to be able to make things safe and to carry on working? Yeah, so I mentioned, um, I'd say one of them is is, is socially distanced briefings and, and, and the sorts of things that we're all seeing in our day-to-day lives um, as, as we venture out previously for our, for our daily exercise or, or now um, as we go to work if we're unable to do it from home. Um, so social distancing is in full effect on our sites. Um, they have, um, Hartief Murphy have, have got a, have increased the number of um, breakout areas. Um, they've they've increased the frequency of uh, increased the frequency or the or, or reduced the number of people taking breaks at any one time. Um, increased increased um, cleaning um, cleaning of sites uh, uh, and um, the number of spaces available for people to take breaks, etc. People bring their own food in. Typically, people are driving their own vehicles to site as well, and there's less car sharing going on, um, as you would expect. So some of the pragmatic uh, decisions that we've all taken in our daily lives sort of um, cascaded onto a slightly larger scale on site at the moment. And, and will those changes have any impact on the, on the project timeline moving forward? Or I'm sure they will, but... Um, to, to what degree I don't think anybody anybody really knows at the moment um, so we'll, we'll keep the show on the road um, uh, where we can it is critical national infrastructure works um, and yeah we'll, we'll we'll keep a close eye on, on what's happening um, as far as procurement goes and, and the future works on site for, for the time being there's been no no changes to timelines in terms of when further procurement will happen or when work's going to be 
on site. No, so so uh, what I haven't mentioned yet, actually, um, um, and we didn't, I didn't quite get to the lessons learned um, from from commercial commercially from the first scheme is is we're an early adopter of Project Thirteen, um, and and we are looking to to um, to project outcomes and to incentivize project outcomes on the scheme. Uh, we, we so our tunnel contract. There's our tunnel contractor. We need cables. We need those cables installing. We need M and E equipment, which I've talked about earlier, and head houses. And these are all different packages. And then ultimately, without substations and, and connections to the actual grid, we can't do it. None, none of the civil assets uh, function for us. So the tunnels, in many ways, are a conduit between the substations and, and rewire in South London. So all those other packages um, are progressing through the supply chain, uh, 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 rather progressing through procurement. Um, at the moment, we'll be looking to award cables and, and head houses in, in the next um, couple of months, largely on plan, um, and, and likewise for substations nearer the end of the year. Um, that's always been planned for, for to be one of the later packages. One of the other lessons learned from the previous schemes is to get those contracts in place as early as possible so we can really maximise the innovation between um, the different working parties and, and employ the required capabilities early enough to, to, to find some of the innovation. So uh, one of the innovations we're looking at is, is, is bringing cables out the shaft and the interface between the substations, the shafts and the HV systems and simplifying that um, and effectively um, using cable troughs more um, than, um, than than deep culverts, which we had to use in previous schemes to try and protect the cables. So, so getting the right capability and the right people in the room to have those conversations as early as possible has been a benefit to us. And we're look, looking to do that quicker this time around with more float on some of those other packages, which are the key ones for actually integrating the assets into the system. Going back to coronavirus briefly, what about the interfaces of your sites with the public? Has coronavirus impacted on the way you set up and plan your site operations at all? Well, um, I think we're work. So we're working in 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 urban environments. So we're always conscious of 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 any potential impact on on members of the public, keeping everybody safe from our operations. Um, so I can't think of anything. So no, I can't think of anything imme- to immediately that 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 would that we'd call out as being something that's changed as a result of, of 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 coronavirus. We've briefed people because I think there's a. I think when during during particularly during the first few weeks in lockdown, when when we were continuing or when when sites were continuing, um, I think there was a nervousness around whether people should be doing that and whether. Um, w- uh, what what people's perception was of that the the letter from Bayes to 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 remind the construction industry or or to incentivize the construction industry um, to continue works um, um, where they where where it's safe to do so was helpful in that regard and we were um, we were proactive in messages and messaging to some of our key stakeholders to make sure they were aware that we were continuing we were social distancing. Um, and ultimately, you know, um, this is critical national infrastructure, so isn't something you can just turn off. Um, or, 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 um, and that 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 proactive approach was well received. Actually, I can't, as I say, I can't point to anything that we're doing that's particularly difficult, different, or that the, a member of public would notice we're doing different now to, say, in February and March, or would have been doing. How has coronavirus affected the demand for electricity? And does that have an effect on projects like this, or, or do you see that as more as a short-term trend? So, coronavirus has impacted uh, demand on the electricity system, as you would expect. Um, the system operator, 
the national grid electricity system operators seen record uh, levels of low demand um, in, in the recent weeks and months, particularly around bank holiday weekends um, as it goes. There are challenges in operating the system at low demand um, and outside of what we would normal what we would see as a normal normal envelope. Um, as to whether it impacts demand going going forward, um, it it may do. I don't think anybody knows for certain um, whether or not how it will impact the need case for this scheme is. We need transmission assets. It, we wouldn't anticipate it to impact the need case for this scheme. We need transmission assets in South London, um, and whether the the cables and the circuits that we're we're installing are able uh, are asked to transmit a hundred thousand or half a million ke- uh, kettle loads. I always use kettles as a good example that kids can get their head around. Each one of our circuits is capable of transmitting um, half a, half a million uh, kettles worth of power through. Um, whether, whether that whether that is reduced in the long term um, or even in the short term, once we've got these um, circuits commissioned in 2026, um, we'll have to wait and see. And we, as as a responsible um, owner operator, will always go around our need case and check that that, that nothing's changed on the system that that, that put, calls into question our need case as to whether we should be doing these works. However, we wouldn't anticipate the short term. Um, impacts even the medium term impacts of coronavirus to, to impact the the need case for our for our um, for our project. Right. So um, so looking ahead, it's sort of in the relative short term. What what are the key milestones for the project in the in the coming months up until up until the end of the year? So we've got um, tunnel borrow machines uh, planned to arrive on site in the next year. Um, in in the um, but. By a year's time, we hope to have three of them um, arrived on site and um, and be be undergoing um, or, or start again. In a year's time, we should have three tunnel borrow machines on site um, and be going through the process to get those launched into the ground and and producing um, producing rings rings and and and, um, and mining through South London chalk and clay. Um, that, that that's obviously a key milestone for us um, and then going out you know going back to what we talked about with procurement in the summer we, we'd like to we will award a cable contract um, for 196 kilometers of cable for, for the for the for the for the, um, for the project and look to uh, award a head house and mechanical electrical um, Contract for the for the for the M&E and headhouses that sit on top of the um, the civil assets. That's a key milestone for us. Um, and then uh, yeah, getting those machines launched in in quarter one next year is is, um, is something we're all looking forward to. Obviously, starting starting shaft um, sinking later on in the summer as well. Um, once we're through the design stage and and, um, and early mobilisation. So what's the most technically challenging aspect of the work? I think dealing with so the technically challenging aspect of the work. Uh, I'm not a civil engineer, but I'd have to say um, that the, the certainly the, the the biggest challenge has got to be the the um, the ground conditions in South London. Uh, 
so that's probably up there with with one of our uh, biggest risks and, and, and probably one of the biggest challenges on the scheme and then it comes back down to um, once once those assets are built it's all about the interfaces and, and the interface between the hv system the civil assets that we're going to build and making sure we've got robust assets and reduce and robust um, interface points um, that are fit for purpose and, and are able to operate for a hundred plus years um, uh, to, to keep the transmission system going. So would you say the ground conditions potentially keep you awake at night or is there another element of the project that you sort of pull your hair out over? Or? Nothing keeps me awake at night other than my uh, one-year-old daughter, actually. Um, uh, but yeah, it's definitely, the big, it's, it's definitely up there as the biggest risk. And then um, we're keen to try and incentivise uh, contractors to work together and innovate. Um, we've used um, the X12 clause um, for collaboration in, in the NEC, um, NEC4 contract to tr- and bringing contract partners on as early as we possibly can to try and innovate, to try and get us out, get us around some of those technical challenges that I mentioned on sites and some of the interfaces. That, that's the plan. Um, yeah, but the ground conditions, I, I think we'll all be, uh, yeah, we'll all be sleeping more soundly um, once we've uh, once we've made some good production rates um, from from these machines that are due to arrive next year. Gareth, I know you're a keen advocate for developing new engineering talent. Can you talk us through what you're doing on the London Power Tunnels to nurture that? Uh, Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about my specific team um, and then go on to talk about what we're doing in the wider communities. Um, So so, uh, I like to use the term master and apprentice as work for for over 500 years. So so why why change it now? So so we're keen to bring on... um, uh, bright, keen um, engineers to work with um, people who've been there and done it before, as well as um, that through all of our contract and contractors and supply chain and also through bringing people into National Grid, um, both on the construction side and the capital delivery side, as we term, term it, and the operations side. And we, we're closely aligned with our operations team um, to make sure that what we're building will satisfy them right at the end. We are talking a seven, eight year program, so that's quite a challenge. Um, so that's how we're dealing with it locally, master and apprentice, um, get people who perhaps haven't done it before working with those who have and upskill them. I started on the first scheme as a young project engineer with a felt tip pen and a map and, and got a different job every two years and, and, um, and I've come to look after the second one, which, which is um, which, which hopefully, if, if I reflect on that with, with some of the other team, that there'll be someone else there to take over from me um, uh, for the third phase um, or, for, or for when that when the next time National Grid's looking to invest in, in a major infrastructure project. And then the work we're doing with communities. So on the first scheme, uh, we had a visitors um, centre, an energy education centre. Um, we, we, we had a perspec uh, lid over one of the shafts and a, and a viewing platform that the kids, um, the school children, we brought school children to site. Um, as put part of day trips for them and, and um, they absolutely loved it like seeing working tunnel boring machines on site and seeing spore coming out of a hole in the ground 30 meters below you is, is something that no 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 school kid or even adult could get bored of um, so we've taken the bits that really work well on that and tried to, to and we found a, a charitable partner called uh, my kind of future um, and we're working with them to try and get in front of or infuse have a hundred thousand sort of touch points with um, with uh, with local communities and school children. So trying to pitch this, trying to pitch our efforts this time at a slight skew it slightly older. So people in GCSE years 
and people who are picking A-levels to really try and enthuse them about science, technology, engineering and maths. Um, and and getting we started the first trial of that just before lockdown as it goes so myself and one of my colleagues stood in front of a school assembly and, and talked about the project some of the engineering challenges and then did a very very simple case study and it was very well received you know um, sc- scores of positive feedback from from teenagers is not to be sniffed at so um, so so that was that was well received and something that we're looking to roll out with my kind of future. Um, it, to any school that's along the thirty-two and a half kilometer route. In fact, any any school that's that's in South London that's that's interested and can travel to one of our sites or allow us to come to one of their assemblies and do what we call a assembly uh, assembly takeover. So that's what we're doing in the communities, um, and hopefully that reinforces the message that we we're trying to leave a, a positive legacy for the scheme um, and and um, speak positively about engineers and take it away from that. Um, that image of scrap heap challenge. There's always a always a place for that, but but it is a it is more polished than that, and and um, and we're trying to show that to all the school, schools along the route. So so why do you think it is important to get involved in pro- projects like My Kind of Future? So um, yeah, so we've got a big challenge in National Grid and the UK in general to try and get um, get ourselves um, to 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 net zero by 2050. I think that's. That's that's well. No, I know that's National Grid's ambition, and that's going to require um, an awful lot of um, engineers and an awful lot of uh, people involved and engaged on uh, in STEM subjects. Um, so, from a corporate point of view, we need to find next next um, next year's ne- next generation of engineers. We we say we have a term that it's the the job that can't wait. Um, rewiring the system and and rewiring the UK such that. We've got a more sustainable base of 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 of, uh, of generation, and then rewire the electricity and transmission and distribution networks to to cater for EV vehicles, for changing heat scenario, ch- ch- um, um, the electrification of heat, and the various things that we know are going to have to come up and, and difficult conversations that are going to have to happen in the next ten or fifteen years. So, what could the industry be doing more of or better in terms of helping young people into engineering careers? Do you think? Do you think maybe people should be offering more opportunities to get onto science to really understand what engineering's about? Yeah, I'd like to think that once you see it, you can you can be it, or, or um, once you see it, you're enthused by it. I think it took um, it took projects, it took a, a case study for me when I was in my last year at university. I think to really sort of be turned around on on major projects because a lot a lot of it before then was was theory based. So yes trying to get people to see it trying to open it up um, and try and enthuse people uh, and get them to visit sites and see what the engineering is about what is possible um, and um, and is is as exciting as anything that google or any of the um, the tech giants can kind of offer up at the moment so how did you become interested in a career in engineering so I'm a, I'm a mechanical engineer. I think I did a, a case study in the last uh, in the last year at university on, on Chernobyl, <laughs> as it goes. And I, I remember thinking that that um, that and a major project um, uh, that and a major project involved using different technical disciplines and teams. And and I preferred that to thermodynamics theory. Um, so I think that then um, that then set me on a, on a path to National Grid Transco, working as a mechanical engineer for Transco uh, on the gas side of the business. 
and then um, and then getting involved in in um, smaller infrastructure projects, then larger infrastructure projects, a project with a tunnel in it, and then the London Power Tunnels project. Um, naturally, after that, and and um, just keeping myself busy and interested, I think. Um, so I don't know if I fell in by accident, but I think a lot of people who end up on site and in infrastructure stay um, because there's there's real value in and and. Um, a real buzz out of seeing something actually getting built on site and, and knowing you you had a hand in it it's coming up to the time when normally people will be doing exams and young people will be thinking quite intensively about um, their career path what advice would you give to anyone considering becoming an engineer pick up the phone to an engineer and and get to a site i think um yeah i think we you know as part of the initial um Actually, as part of the first phase, um, we engaged with various different schools and, and a, a company, our, our previous charitable partner was called Cityer. One of the Cityer, Cityer is a social enterprise um, and, and they ask young people, typically young people, to give up a year of their, their lives to effectively become um, teaching assistants and sort of um, uh, and, um, and mentors, mentors for school children. Um, one of said, we t- we did a trip out to our control centre, our control room in in, um, in Wokingham, and one of said um, mentors and engineers um, was I, was was applying to, or I, I encourage him to apply to, National Grid, and has since become a, a lead project manager responsible for fifteen or twenty million pounds worth of uh, of, of of HV sites. Um, so Rodney Rodney Williams is an example of, of, of how you can perhaps induce somebody to think about and, and, and have a run at something um, that they may not have done. So, yeah, I think anybody wanting to become an engineer, speak to an engineer or speak to someone or, or, or just uh, try and have a conversation and get to see what goes on behind some of those hoardings because once you see it, it's quite interesting and, and, um, and it will grab you in, I think. Well, you've got six years on site in South London. Hopefully at some point the coronavirus restrictions will be lifted and we can come along and do a report for New Civil Engineer. Please I, do. I love a tunnel, so I want to get down there. Um, thanks very much for joining us today, Gareth. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy listening to these podcasts, we encourage you to leave us a written review on whichever podcast platform you're using and share it online with your colleagues using the hashtag EngineersCollective. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems.